and uh, you might not be able to make it out completely, but hopefully you can see some of it. Um, it is of a woman, uh, and she is in quite an uncomfortable position. She's straining quite badly, uh, looks a bit uncomfortable there, and she's sitting on top of a globe, and the globe is sort of metallic, rust-coloured, uh, and you'll see that she's blindfolded, and behind her, her head she's holding a musical instrument. Now, you probably can't make out... Uh, but you can look at it later online if you want to, uh, that the instrument has all the strings broken, apart from one. And behind her head, there is, it's very dark, there is just one little star at the very top that's starting to blink and shine through. Um, it, it's an interesting painting. It's got a very interesting title. It's called Hope. I don't know if you look at that painting and think... Hope is <laughs> uh, quite unusual. Very unusual because um, of, it's very different to the way hope is usually represented in art. Hope is often represented as a woman, but a young woman looking into the sky expectantly, holding a, a flower or a, some, some symbol of life. And here we have a woman looking down and blindfolded and holding something broken. It begins to make a bit more sense when we know it was painted in 1886 by this guy, George Frederick Watts, and Britain had just gone through what was known as the Long Depression. There'd been a huge economic downturn. People were all feeling a lot poorer. People were wondering whether the Industrial Revolution had really delivered all it promised and whether they'd wrecked their planet by uh, mechanizing and, and building all these factories and actually they hadn't profited from it as much as they thought they were going to. Uh, and around that time, there was a group of philosophers led by a guy called Nietzsche who were questioning the very idea of hope. Hope had always been understood as a virtue, a good thing. But Nietzsche said, I'm not sure, sure hope is a good thing. I think all hope does is it encourages people to waste their efforts and energies on futile causes. And so people's views about hope were a bit murky. Was it good? Was it bad? And I think this painting taps into that. Uh, the painter Watts never actually said what he thought it meant. So is it a positive vision of hope? Because although it looks pretty bleak, there is still one star. There is still one string that's not broken. Is, is the message of the painting, however bad things look, you've not reached the end yet. There's still more to say, more to sing. Or is the message, well, look at hope. It's pretty rubbish, isn't it? Is hope worthless? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's an interesting painting. It's open to lots of interpretations. And I wonder if that strikes a chord with us today. As I describe the situation of economic trouble, environmental fears for the future, I wonder if that taps into something of how we're feeling now. Actually, I think in the world today, in, in this country anyway, Hope feels like it is in short supply at times. Finds difficult, feels difficult to come by. Um, maybe this picture taps in to something of that. It wasn't always like this. I am old enough to remember uh, these scenes. Um, uh, the, the one on the right there, Tony Blair, that's a picture taken on election night in 1997. And as a 10-year-old boy, I was allowed to stay up to watch it because we didn't have school the next day. Uh, so I, I enjoyed that, uh, just being able to stay up late, really. Uh, but I do remember when it became clear that he'd won this massive victory, he gets up to give his victory speech, he says, 
A new dawn has broken, has it not? And I just remember the feeling of hope everywhere you turned. There was a real optimistic mood in the country. And you might look at that now and think, really? Because it didn't seem to turn out quite the way we all thought it might. Roll the clock on 10 years, and in America, you very similar scenes in lots of ways with Barack Obama, who one of his big campaign messages was hope. Hope. He wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. And I think those campaigns connected with so many people because as human beings, we are designed for hope. So you might be here today as a new student or you've moved to Manchester for a new job and you are wondering, what does the future hold? You might be worried that there isn't a lot of hope out there. You might be a parent who sent a child off to university or is about to or is, you know, your child's changed class or changed school or something and you're sort of thinking... What kind of world are they walking into? What are they growing up in? Is it hopeful? How do we respond to that sense that it doesn't feel quite as hopeful as it once did? I think there's three basic reactions. You can become quite jaded and cynical and kind of just give up. Or you can... um, Distract yourself, amuse yourself with other things, you know, fill your life with as many little treats as possible, uh, live your best life now, enjoy a nice trip abroad, some good food, good wine, whatever it is you enjoy, uh, uh, you know, great, great, just fill your life with things. Now, they're not bad things, necessarily, but if you're only doing it to distract yourself from a sense of hopelessness, then maybe it's not the best strategy. Or another alternative is you can try and stir up hope. You can find a cause to join. You can say, I'm going to give my life to this thing and live for it uh, because then I'll find some meaning, some purpose, some hope. And amongst younger people in particular, there has been an uptake in people joining causes. You might not agree with every single aim or strategy of a group like Just Stop Oil, but you don't have to to see that they're tapping into something, right? They're attracting people to their movement because people are going, look... I want to live for something. Uh, it's not, it's not an unusual or, or necessarily a wrong reaction to hopelessness. Let's find something to hope in. I think it is helpful to, to view it in sort of the long view of history as well, though. Because hopelessness or a lack of hope, people have faced that in lots of times and places, including in the first century when Jesus came onto the scene. Because God's people then, well, they'd been conquered by the Roman Empire. Uh, They didn't have a king, or at least not one they really recognized as a true king. Uh, They hadn't heard from God in 400 years. No, No prophets had been sent to them. It felt pretty bleak, pretty hopeless. And that is the stage into which last week we saw John the Baptist comes. And proclaims a fresh start that Paul told us about last week. That's like the first little star just blinking in the background. The last little string on the lyre just starting to make a bit of noise. And it's all to prepare us for Jesus. And today in our reading is when Jesus comes center stage and he announces himself and he announces why he's come and what he's all about. Our series is Who is Jesus? And we're going to see more as we walk through these early chapters of Mark. But today is his first big announcement. 
his first big speech about who he is and what he's come to do. He gathers his key team together, and then they get to work. And it sows the seeds of what he's come for, and he calls it, you heard this in the reading, he calls it the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see is that Jesus shows us that that is where we should look to find hope. That is the ultimate cause to join. And we're going to investigate that kingdom of God under three headings this morning. The call of God's kingdom, the challenge of God's kingdom, and the beauty of God's kingdom. And so first we're going to look at the call of God's kingdom. And the call, I've summarized it like this. The call is come and find hope. Come and find hope. Let's just read those verses, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1 again. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's his first announcement, and there is a lot packed into it. Uh, First, Jesus says the time has come. And the time has come. He's picked his moment to announce himself. Like a, a good leader does, he looks at the scene and says, now's the time when I need to enter. And it's come because we heard John has been put in prison. Uh, While John was still proclaiming and getting people ready for Jesus, Jesus could take his time and keep planning and keep preparing for what he was going to do. But once John is removed and put in prison, Jesus knows that's the moment he has to act. The time has come. And then he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Now let's just explore what this kingdom of God is. It actually has its roots in the Old Testament. God had promised that there was a day coming when he would send somebody, a perfect king, to rule his people. And when he took charge, the world would be full of justice and righteousness, peace and harmony. There are some wonderful pictures and visions of this future world of blessing and prosperity and joy. And God says, I'm going to do it. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel has all sorts of visions about various kingdoms. And one of the exciting things is uh, there's a statue which represents all the kingdoms of the world and it gets knocked over by this huge boulder and the boulder stays. And Daniel says that vision means that all the kingdoms of the world, they come and go. They rise, they fall. But this kingdom that God's promising, this perfect future that God's promising, it will be forever. And that's why Jesus, when he calls us to the kingdom, is calling us to find hope. Real hope, lasting hope, eternal hope. And that is so precious because nothing else can give it to you. There are lots of good things one can live for. There are lots of good ways to spend your time and energy. There are lots of good things you can build. You can build a great group of friends to support you. You can build a family. You can build a business if you want to. You can build a career. There are so many things that you can build that are good and worthwhile. But like all human kingdoms, the things that we build are only for a time. They rise and fall. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but we should keep it in perspective. If we put all our hopes in any of those things... We're putting our hope in something that is very fragile and will one day slip away. The sense of hopelessness that a lot of people feel today might be because 
they hoped for something that a previous 10, 15 years ago was promised, and it never materialized. But when Jesus says, the kingdom has come, he's inviting us to find a hope that will last forever. He says the kingdom of God has come near, and he's very careful about the way he says it. He doesn't quite say, the kingdom of God is here right now. And he doesn't quite say, the kingdom of God is coming in the future. He says it's come near. So there's a sense in which you can see it now. But it's not in full effect yet. It's not been completely established yet. God is now at work in a new way through Jesus, and yet there's more to come. You're not actually seeing right now that perfect world of peace and justice and harmony. We don't see the fullness of God's kingdom, but we can start to see the effects of the work of God in people's lives. We can start to see Jesus having an impact and having an influence. It's an analogy. It might not help you, but it helps me a little bit. Um, In an American election, uh, you get elected in November, but you don't take office until January. And so you've got a couple of months in between where the person who wins is known as the president-elect. They're not just a candidate anymore. Something's changed. Something's happened. And they now have a newfound influence and impact, and they can start using their position to sort of get some things started. But you don't see them fully in position in the Oval Office, signing things into law yet. Uh, There's a gap between those two things. And and in a sense... uh, We as Christians now still live in what's called the now and the not yet, or the overlap of the two ages. Uh, The kingdom has come near. We can start to see its effects, but we don't see Jesus fully ruling and reigning or his reign fully fully established everywhere. We don't see that perfect promised future world just yet. And yet, because the time has come and the kingdom's come near, we can get on board and get involved Now, and that is the call. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. Two things, repent and believe. And they are words that often get said in churches, in liturgies, in things like that. And sometimes we can lose quite how radical they are, what what a meaning they have. Uh, To repent, it's a a Greek word, metanoia, and it means uh, a complete revolution. It is to change one's mind, one's heart, one's life. To change your whole direction, to to have a complete revolution from within at the deepest possible level. To repent means to change the way you think. To change the way you feel about things. To change what you love. To change what you desire. To change what you're going to prioritize in life. It's a change that is so radical and so deep. And it comes from right deep down within. And to believe, the word carries this sense of trusting loyalty. It is to say to Jesus, I I think you really are the king that God has sent, and I'm all in. I'm behind you. I want to be on board with the cause you're calling me to. I want to get on board with God's kingdom, and I'm going to live for it. These are huge and radical calls, which brings us into our second point, the challenge of God's kingdom, because these are big things, and they will challenge us. The challenge of God's kingdom is this. It will mean change. 
If you come and find hope with Jesus, it will mean changes to your life. And we have examples of those changes in the first disciples that Jesus calls. So first of all, in verse 16, he sees Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said. I will send you to fish for people. So for these two, what this repenting and believing looks like is, for them, the change is a change of career. Uh, They were fishermen. They knew how to be fishermen. And Jesus said, I've got something else for you to do. You're going to come and be disciples and do my job uh, with me of changing people's lives. Now, some of us here will have changed career or might even be thinking about it right now. And you know that is a challenging, a scary, an uncomfortable, and a difficult thing to do. It means leaving something that's familiar to us and setting off on something entirely new. And one of the real scary things about it is, you don't know if you'll be any good at it. <laughs> what, if I'm not, what if I'm not competent in my new career? Simon and Andrew knew how to be fishermen. They've been doing it a while. And Jesus calls them to be disciples. And if you read through Mark, they mess up. They mess up all the time. There are times when it says Peter doesn't, didn't even know what to say. Sometimes he just didn't know how to be a disciple. Knew how to be a fisherman, but Jesus called him to something different. And that was pretty scary and challenging at times for him. And then we see something slightly different with James and John. Um, so we hear that they are the sons of Zebedee in verse 19. And we hear in verse 20 that they left the hired men. Now, that just hints and clues that the fishing business was probably Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company. Zebedee and his sons owned the business. It was their family business. They had men that they hired to help them. And in those days, I mean, even now, but in those days especially, a family business, that was something that was passed on from one generation to the next, to the next for hundreds of years. And Jesus says, leave it. And follow me. That's a challenging call. Leave the life you're building. Leave the things you are investing in. And come and invest in something else with me. That is a challenging call. It is not a comfortable or an easy life that Jesus is calling people to. It's a, a complete revolution from within. It doesn't mean for everybody that they'll give up their jobs or sell their businesses. The change Jesus is calling you to is, is, is what he's calling you to. It might not be the same as these guys. But it is supposed to be a radical, upending, world-changing call. So if it sometimes feels uncomfortable following Jesus, it's supposed to. <laughs> Take comfort in that. And there is a little challenge there, isn't it? Isn't there? If it doesn't feel like that for us, is that because Jesus is saying, I need you to repent and believe again? I I need you to think about actually what you're living for. Look within and say, Jesus, where do you want my heart and my mind? Are they in the right place? Do they need to change? Luther said, Martin Luther said, the whole of a Christian's life is one of repentance. This is something that is a challenge that's ongoing. And I remember talking to a Christian a little older than me uh, a few months ago, and she said, Tim, they'd been through an awful lot. They'd had family stuff, they'd had job stuff, um, health, health scares in the family, and something else had cropped up. 
And she said, Tim, we're being called to turn around and trust again in Jesus. He has more to teach us. And I was like, oh, wow. It really struck me. That is what Jesus calls us to. And we'll be called again and again to repent and believe and get our hearts and minds in the right place. It is not an easy life. Now you say, but Tim, I'd really like an easy life. But think about it for a second, really. Would you? Here's a a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, who was American president. Um, It seems to be the morning of American presidents, but um, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, But he said this, Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. I've never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I've envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. There's a real truth in that. I suspect many of us could agree with an echo. Jesus isn't calling you to ease. He's calling you to a difficult and challenging life. Getting on board with God's kingdom will mean change, and change is often uncomfortable and difficult, but it is worth it because of our third point, the beauty of God's kingdom, the beauty of God's kingdom. And that beauty starts to creep in, in particular, verses 21 to 28. I don't really have time to look at it in great detail, but I want two things. I want to bring out two things. Uh, The first is Jesus' teaching. So he goes into the synagogue and he teaches in verse 21. And the people are amazed because he teaches with authority. See, the rabbis of the day, the way they would teach is someone would ask them a question and they would go, well, rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi... And you'd get lots of information, but maybe not clarity. You maybe wouldn't really understand what God wanted for your life. Whereas Jesus comes in and he teaches God's word. And he can start to put the pieces of life together for people and make sense of life for people. And in our complicated, confusing world, and it just seems to get more and more complicated and confusing every day, how precious it is, how beautiful it is to have somebody who can make sense of life. But more than that, he doesn't just have the knowledge, he has power. So a man comes in who has this impure spirit and cries out, what do you want with this Jesus? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus says a word, verse 25, be quiet. And the spirit comes out of him. Now, if you are used to reading the Gospels, there's a a chance that you can gloss over stories like this. Just think about that man. Just think about his life. He was trapped controlled by something, a force that meant him harm. And as you go through the Gospels, Jesus meets many people like that. Sometimes they're trapped by supernatural forces, sometimes by natural forces, but either way, the Bible says there are forces out there that intend harm. And Jesus and God's kingdom has come in order to bring good into those situations, in order to bring healing and wholeness, and restoration, and that is just what he does for this guy, and his life would never have been the same again. Think about the freedom and the liberty he would have felt at having his life changed that day by meeting Jesus. That is what Jesus has come to do, change lives, 
by bringing beauty and goodness into those lives. By challenging and confronting and defeating those forces that mean us harm. That's what he's come for. And he is strong enough to do it. And he is good enough that that's what he's all about and what he wants to do. And isn't it precious to have a king, to have a leader who is both competent and strong and good? I know sometimes we feel conflicted when we go to a voting booth or something like that, and maybe one candidate, they look a bit more competent. (laughs) But my heart's really with the other one, but I'm just not sure they can really do the job. Often we feel like we're caught between competence and strength and ability and goodness. And here in Jesus, they are brought together in the most beautiful way. And he's the king. He sets the tone of the kingdom. And so the work that the kingdom has come to do in people's lives is to bring good. Come and find hope. It will mean change. It will be a challenge. But the change will be good. Just to return as we come toward the end to that picture. Lots of interpretations have been given, and as I say, it's ambiguous. People, you know, debate what it, what it means. But someone once asked George Watts' wife, after George Watts had died, what she thought it meant. Um, and I guess she'd be as able to know as anybody, and maybe had had conversations with him about the painting. And she says, well, the interesting thing is, um, well, a couple of interesting things. This is the first time, oh no, I think I said that earlier. First time in art history that Hope's represented as blind, but also unusually, Hope's represented alone. Normally, when hope's represented in art, represented with two other figures, also women, faith and love. And so she thought the meaning of the painting was that without faith and love, that's the kind of hope you have. Hope needs faith and love. And so as Jesus calls people to his kingdom, to this eternal hope, He does so calling them also to believe in faith and pouring out his love and goodness into people's lives. It's Jesus who combines all that. And it is in Jesus, therefore, that we find a beautiful hope, a lasting hope, a challenging hope, yes, but a hope that is good and worth building our lives on. I'm going to pray. And then the band are going to lead us in a song that picks up on some of that and will enable us to direct our hearts and minds toward praising Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the message of this passage. We thank you that Jesus, this Jesus, is the one you have sent. He is the king who has come to bring in your kingdom. We thank you that is a beautiful and a good kingdom. It is a place to find lasting hope. It is a challenging kingdom. You call us to a challenging life. But you do it for our good because you have good plans and good purposes. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.